Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Anna Fishson, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Jared Russell about his brand new book, Nietzsche and the Clinic, Psychoanalysis, Philosophy, Metaphysics. It was published by Karnak this year in 2017. Congratulations, Jared, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anna. Uh, It's wonderful to be here after some technical difficulties. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we had some. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Jared. Uh, he's my colleague and, and actually twice teacher. Uh, Dr. Russell is an analyst in private practice in New York City. We, um, he earned his PhD in philosophy at the New School for Social Research while undergoing analytic training at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, that's IPTAR. He is currently a member, clinical supervisor, and faculty at both IPTAR and NPAP in New York. And he's managing editor of The Undecidable Unconscious, a journal of deconstruction and psychoanalysis published by University of Nebraska Press. Okay, so before, before we begin in earnest, um, I'd like, let me say just a few words about Jared's book. It's... Um, Its originality, I think, resides in its attempt not only to bring together philosophy and psychoanalytic theory in a rigorous way, but also to to bring academic work to the practice of psychoanalysis. Um, Every chapter in the book contains a discussion of clinical material that illustrates Nietzsche's ideas and and ethics, actually. Um, Each chapter asks, you know, what does Nietzsche offer the clinic? So the book discusses um, Nietzschean concepts like perspectivism, will to power, resentment, and also Nietzsche's critiques of commercial culture, metaphysics, um, what he called a slave morality. And, th- and, then it, and then it illuminates the ways these concepts intersect and arguably enrich um, psychoanalytic notions like the drive, Helena Deutsch's as if, Klein's envy, and, um, and projective identification, Winnicottian play, and then finally, the last chapter, Lacan's notions of jouissance and the real unconscious, the late Lacan. Okay, so then, and even more interestingly, Jared puts Nietzsche into dialogue with specific elements of clinical practice, like, uh, I hope we get to some of these interpretation, free association, knowledge and truth, empathy, reverie. Um, okay, so before we dig in to these encounters you stage between um, Nietzsche and psychoanalysis, I'd like to ask you, like maybe on a more personal note, um, what led you to write the book, Jared? Sure. Um, first, thanks for that introduction. That was very comprehensive. <laughs> um, and it does emphasize that yeah, this is a book for clinicians, uh, even though it is academic. I tried to write a book that was rigorously academic, but not tediously academic, and I do hope the clinicians find it uh, useful. So, um, on a personal note, right, uh, well, you know, Nietzsche famously said that all philosophy is autobiography, and I think the same is true of metapsychology or any theory in general, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I was at a point where I had suffered a lot of loss in my life at one point. I had gone through a lot of loss in a very short period of time, and I found myself reading Nietzsche I think sort of looking for a, you know, that which does not kill me only makes me stronger vibe. <laughs> Just looking for something kind of supportive and, um, and found it. And um, suddenly started to notice all of these connections between the reading that I was doing and the work that I was doing with patients. So I would, you know, go to work all day, seeing patients, come home and literally open up a page of Nietzsche at random mm-hmm. and see something that was illuminating some problem that I had been dealing with during the day clinically, uh, and to the point where it got weird. I mean, um, <laughs> Nietzsche became increasingly, increasingly relevant for things that I was seeing in the clinic on a day-by-day basis. And I had already done some writing on Nietzsche. What turned out to be my Klein chapter mm-hmm. had previously been published, so I mean, there was a precedent there. Um, but all of these uh, ways of looking at various psychoanalytic thinkers um, 
I, I was able to put them into dialogue, at least in my head, uh, through the lens of Nietzsche's philosophy. Mm-hmm. So that's what brought me to the book. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. So some of these, um, maybe for our listeners, they, I don't know what their knowledge of Nietzschean concepts are. So we're going to assume that maybe the last time some of some people encountered him was like in college when, right. you know, it was like the Ayn Rand version of Nietzsche or something oh, that God. you come across. Right. No, there is that one, right? Where it's like will to power. It's some kind of like phallic architect that builds phallic buildings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, yeah, maybe. No, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say like the, 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 the Steve Bannon version of Nietzsche, which yes. is practically illiterate to even read. I mean, it's just, it, it's enough or nothing that Nietzsche made uh, uh, Zarathustra's companion an ape because he knew he would be completely misunderstood. Um, and I tried to work past that in the book, sure. So, yeah, so yeah I guess we have to start, start really at the beginning. So, so I'm wondering, yeah, and, and this is, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I want people to just to completely eradicate that caricature so uh, mm-hmm. maybe you can say something about uh, will to power, um, perspectivism, and resentment. I know it's a lot, but just to give maybe a little bit about each to give people a little introduction. To your it book. is a lot. I know. Right. Well, let's let's start with will to power because it does not, you know, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it might mean. No, maybe. it absolutely yeah. does not. Um, people imagine that will to power means the desire for power, which is exactly the opposite of uh, what Nietzsche is after. I write at some point that it's the very desire for authority that is the mark of the absence of authority. Right? The truly aristocratic or strong individual in Nietzsche's sense doesn't want anything to do with power. It just kind of, it just kind of accumulates uh, in his or her life. And so will to power is not about a striving after power. It's about an openness to one's environment that can't be figured in metaphysical terms. I'm sure we get into that. Um, but it's about an openness to one's environment um, that allows one uh, to experience the world and life as intensely, as effectively uh, as, as possible. So will to power, rather than being the desire for power of any particular subject, mm. rather than being the desire of a subject to dominate an object, which has no place in just thinking whatsoever, it's about being as radically open to experience as is possible, such that one is equally as affected by the power of the other and affects the other in turn, the world in turn. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a radical so a openness. Of, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would defer to that kind of vocabulary. Yeah, will to power is a kind of radical openness towards the world that allows one to function as an agent on the world historical scene. Mm-hmm. To be effective in one's life, to do things and win a constant. Mm-hmm. Does it have anything to do with drive? Um, I'm, absolutely, I would think it has to do with drive. I mean, the, the Freudian um, drive, obviously, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the Freudian drive, here, you know, you'd have to make a distinction between what I would think of, and a lot of people today would think of as the truly Freudian concept of the drive, and the psychiatric version of the drive is the instinct, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about drive as um, a concept on the border between the mental and the physical. And this would have everything to do with what Nietzsche means by power. But power or will, even speaking the word will, we think of will as something that is the possession of a subject, right? First there's me, and then I have this will to do something in the world. Nietzsche reverses this entirely. It's not that first there's me, and then I will something. It's that will is there Mm. in what he calls a kind of differential multiplicity, right? There's, there's not just one will. That's one way of speaking about it, but will is always multiple. And the same with the drives are always multiple. Like mm. Freud said that, you know, he, he um, contested his opponents who thought he reduced everything down to the sexual drive. But he said, no, there's always conflict, which means that there's always multiplicity at the level of the drives. So what Nietzsche means by power and what Freud means by drive, I think are very, very closely related. Not to say that they're they're exactly the same, and maybe I treat them as too similar at times, mm. um, but they're very much, very much related. Mm-hmm. And drive, you know, if, if drive is always multiple, it always implies a kind of hierarchy. It always implies difference. And for Nietzsche, that's precisely what power is. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of multiplicity, maybe you can say then something about perspectivism and how that relates, or, or if it relates. Um, the perspectivism, again, is one of those concepts in Nietzsche that um, often is misinterpreted. I spend a good time at the beginning of the book um, outlining this particular concept. Another thing that 
just to go back to your previous question, another thing that got me thinking about Nietzsche was uh, a colleague of ours, actually, Anna, started to post messages online uh, as part of a, a listserv that we're, and, and that we're a part of. And he kept referring to Nietzsche's statement that there are no interpretations, uh, I'm sorry, there are no facts, only interpretations. Mm. And it started to drive me nuts because I knew that if you're not familiar with Nietzsche, what that sounds like is yet another version of this tedious, you know, postmodern relativism where everything's subjective and there's no truth <laughs> and everything is infinitely interpretable and there's therefore there's no authority and to assert any kind of conviction is just one's own pathology, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So I got really you know, preoccupied with explaining <laughs> to people who didn't have this background what it means to say that there are no facts, there are only interpretations, which is not, you know, there are no facts, there are just or merely interpretations, but to say that when we assert what a fact is, what a truth is, that's an interpretive gesture. And what Nietzsche understands by perspectivism is a way of thinking about facts. And of course there are facts, not denying that, but it's a way of thinking about facts as something that is not immutable. That fact isn't something objective in a classical sense, but that factuality, objectivity, truth, themselves are subject to change. Mm. And there are accumulations of perspectives, in a way. It's not just about the accumulation of perspectives, like, you know, uh, (laughs) I I get older, I expand my awareness, I Uh have wisdom, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's not so much about accumulation, it's about... And going back to the concept of willpower, as you put it, radical openness, it's about the ability to to be changed, to be affected such that one sees things from a completely different perspective at any given moment. Mm. And not in a way that erases previous perspectives, but that allows one to appreciate uh, situations from as many different perspectives as possible. So in Nietzsche, that's the antidote to what we know as positivism. Positivism as a particular form a scientific discourse that attempts to you know, assert what is always true, what is always factual, what is shared by all, and therefore what is not open to interpretation. We should use that as a very authoritarian way of approaching the question of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's linked to um, his, dis- while well, you discuss in the book, uh, his relationship to causality, or Nietzsche, what he has to say about causality, um, and what he has to say about metaphysics, which um, are not very positive. <laughs> So this 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 is his anti-positivist, um, but I mean, yes, I'm I'm going to ask. I am curious how specifically this could help clinicians. Like, how is a clinician when you hear yeah. that? Um, you know, what do you what do you get from that? What how does that affect you within you know in the consulting room? Yeah, good question. And you're getting away from a, a more theoretical and abstract approach to these kinds of concepts. Um, just putting aside the imminently practical question, okay, what do I do with this? Mm. If you just think about the history of the psychoanalytic movement and how we think about what it is that we do, right? So putting aside psychoanalytic theory, how we think about what it is that we do in interpreting, for instance, right? Psychoanalytic technique is basically synonymous with interpretation. But given that that's the case, you know, you would think that psychoanalysis would have a fairly robust theory about what interpretation is. Mm. And surprisingly, it does not. In the least bit, we we don't think about what it is that we're doing when we interpret. So what Nietzsche allows us to do is to pose that question. If psychoanalysis is a practice of interpretation, okay, fine. But what does that mean? And in the context of, you know, what's called today, I think nefariously, the mental health industry, the question of, you know, how or why you would treat certain forms of pathology with an interpretive approach is an important one. That's a Mm. question that we really need to answer. And Nietzsche's way of thinking about, to the back to your term, which I like so much, openness, like radical openness, is a way of thinking about what the practice of interpretation consists of. How do you open somebody up to a perspective that they've closed themselves down from? So mm-hmm. if you think about interpretation as simply, you know, explaining causally the present in terms of the past, which is traditionally how it works, right? Um, yeah. You know, you're having your Oedipus complex here with me in the transference. This goes back to your relationship with your parents when you were young. Causal interpretation. And the patient's supposed to go, oh, my gosh, now I understand. 
Well, that's the caricature like... of the interpretation, right? Although, although the pa- exactly. patients do ex- expect that, some of them. So, and you know, uh, one of the things that I kind of regret about the book is I fear that I made too much of a case against that kind of interpretation. Hmm. It wasn't my intention to say, you know, don't do that, or or, or we or we ought not think that way. Um, that kind of a practice certainly has its place. There are certainly moments where it's tremendously effective in facilitating difference and change. But I think more and more these days, analysts are coming up against those cases where that doesn't work. I mean, I I spend a lot of time with Helena Deutsch's as this personality, because I think that's the prototypical case where, Mm. you know, a traditional thinking and traditional practice of interpretation precisely fails. Mm -hmm. Um, because those kinds of patients are expecting that kind of causal interpretation in order to avoid a different kind of interpretation, an interpretation that would open somebody up Mm -hmm. uh, rather than allow somebody to remain shut down. So the question is to what Nietzsche and all these, you know, abstract philosophical uh, concepts has to do with clinical practice. It allows us to you really reevaluate all of these concepts. Allow us to really re- reevaluate what it is that psychoanalysis has to offer today. Mm-hmm. In so many different contexts. I mean, I spent a lot of time again with concepts like nihilism and ressentiment and, and positivism, as we discussed, which I think historically are becoming, uh, and as Nietzsche predicted, more and more entrenched in contemporary culture. Well, can you can you say a few words about resentment because uh, it connects to you know Klein for you? I think in the Klein chapter yeah. you really develop it in relation to envy, and also empathy. Uh, well, anyway, we'll talk about empathy <laughs> in a second. But but can you just say can you just explain what what Nietzsche's resentment is about? You know, sure, his version. Uh, I didn't expect to give. Um accounts of all the major concepts. Just this I mean, last this one. This is a big one. <laughs> <laughs> he got me on my toes. Oh, no, it's fine. I can do it. Um, uh, but ressentiment, right. Ressentiment was, um, you know, Nietzsche retains the French term. This is not, obviously, a term that he invents, nor is he the first to really draw attention to it. There's some great work by Kierkegaard, who also discussed ressentiment as a kind of modern condition par excellence. Um, but ressentiment, uh, you know, it could be translated simply as resentment, but it's much more active and much more destructive. And Nietzsche sees in this, um, this aspect, this feeling of ressentiment or resentment, uh, a turning inwards. In other words, you know, when I feel resentment, just like Klein describes when I feel envy, mm. right, I don't just feel bad, I want to destroy things. I want to ruin things. Spoiled. I want to destroy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I don't. I just. I don't just want to destroy what I feel attacked by, but I want to ruin the very possibility of joy itself. Right, because you resent the other, how other people enjoy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right? So it's not that I want to enjoy <laughs> like you. That's just that's just jealousy. <laughs> Envy or ressentiment is an effort to ruin your capacity to enjoy in the first place to make you like me. So ressentiment is about uh, enforcing sameness. It's about eliminating difference. Mm. It's, it's literally, an, you know, as we would say, an attack on the other in a very, very primitive and affective and, I would say, pre-linguistic way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you're with somebody who is, you know, with your, <laughs> with your, when you're with a, a, a pouting child, you know, <laughs> who's silent in all of his or her, you know, hatred and destructiveness, it, it exudes this kind of communication mm. that gets you to feel a, a similar a similar kind of internal destructiveness. And Nietzsche was very, very attuned to the, to the pre-linguistic, to the pre-verbal, and to the affective. And he discusses, you know, throughout his work, several different affective experiences that we really have no language for. But without question, ressentiment is by far the most important. Mm-hmm. This, 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 um, this saying no to the world, this refusal of difference and change, which is the essence of what he calls metaphysics, it's not some kind of abstract, you know, conceptual idea. It, it, it really is a basic human experience of profound destructiveness, and it is rampant in the world in which we live. And I think psychoanalysis has a unique and particular purchase on, on addressing that and resolving it. Mm. But that's just me. Um, well, since we're, so I'm going to ask you kind of a tough question, maybe, I'm not sure, but we'll, we'll see if, 
If Are it, we done uh, with the easy question? Yeah, we're done with we're done with explaining. <laughs> <laughs> so, because okay. I, I was, I, you know, what does this concept resentiment add to? Does it? I mean, I know I understand how it relates to Kleinian envy, for example, but how does it um, help you expand that theory, or does it? You know, or or is it just something that we can view side by side to kind of fortify it, if you will? I mean, is it, you know what I'm um, saying? Does it deepen the clinical perspective at all? That is a tough question, um, and it's a very good one. I'm not sure that it necessarily deepens the clinical perspective. I think what I was trying to suggest is, if you think about Nietzsche's analysis of ressentiment, you actually put Kleinian thought, Kleinian clinical thought, in dialogue with a lot of sociopolitical thought these days. Mm. In other words, it's not that it deepens the clinical concept, it's that it expands the domain of clinical interventions to cover the social field at large. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. He's talking about a, you know, a deeply psychological experience, but one that pervades culture. So I think Nietzsche, rather than expanding, I mean, rather than deepening client, it expands the reach of her analyses. Mm-hmm. So it makes Klein, yeah, now we can talk about the social using Klein, which people don't normally do. They turn to Lacan, they turn to other, you know, Winnicott, yeah. maybe, more more than more than, so than her. Um, well, the, the Kleinians turn to, to Klein. Yeah, that's about. true. <laughs> you know, how to feel, you know? you know, there's there's yeah. plenty of good political writing from a Kleinian mm. perspective. It doesn't get as much play, you're right, as you know, Lacanian perspective today, for instance. And let me say, I have Within no the academy, I should say. Yeah, within the academy, I think. I think you see the yeah. difference. Yeah. I should qualify yeah. it, definitely. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I have no particular, besides Nietzsche, I have no particular allegiance to any of the, the major thinkers in the book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I take a little bit from each of them. I admire each of them on their own terms. I don't belong to a particular school. Um, so the book is kind of eclectic in its approach to many different major thinkers. Hopefully that doesn't come across as superficial, but rather, um, hopefully I'm able to draw essential insights from each one of them. Whereas, you know, the main character here is Nietzsche, who allows us to read each one in her, either her own particular way. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, so th- yes, there are chapters, there's one devoted primarily to Deutsch, although others... Um, and specifically as if uh, personality. And then there's the, a Klein chapter and a Winnicott chapter, which I have to say, you know, I think people consider, when they consider Nietzsche, they don't normally think that he's a theorist of play, but at least I didn't. But then when you think together Winnicott and Nietzsche, uh, the results are just sort of marvelous. And I actually, maybe, maybe we can say something about that chapter. It's my, it's sure. my favorite chapter. Um, so I mean, most productive for me personally was uh, what Nietzsche says about the child and temporality and, and be, you know, becoming. So maybe can you say something about this uh, relationship of, um, let's say, a will to power to the Winnicottian idea of transference and also to symbolization? Transference. Um, you know, like as an overlapping play space between analyst and... Sure. Well, first, let me say, uh, it kind of surprises me to hear you say that Nietzsche is not, I mean, I know what you mean, Nietzsche is not known for being a theorist of play, but, uh, you know, if you think of the work of Jacques Derrida, who thought a great deal about play, that largely came from Nietzsche, Mm. and that was something that he really seized upon in Nietzsche's work, so I kind of took it for granted one of the play is one of Nietzsche's great themes, I mean, going all the way back to Heraclitus, who I, he identified with so much. So, uh, lest anyone think that Nietzsche is all about control and domination, far from it. Play <laughs> is really what he's trying to think mm-hmm. in terms of power, the power, the power to play. I'm really attached. I love that quote um, that I used. I've used it a million times before, but it, it wound up as the, the epigraph to my Winnicott chapter on the shore. Nietzsche writes, yeah. Well, no, no, the one where Nietzsche writes a man's maturity, uh, I don't have it in front of me, a man's maturity is having found again the seriousness one had at play as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that kind of seriousness of play uh, is a deeply Nietzschean concept, and it's a deeply Winnicottian concept. And I don't think, I think Winnicott understood play in a way that psychoanalysis still has really yet to, really yet to understand and to mm. um, integrate into its thinking. So, um, 
thinking about Nietzsche on play, I mean, one of the concepts that you brought up but we didn't get a chance to discuss was the very central concept of metaphysics. Mm. And metaphysics for Nietzsche always means an effort to uh, prioritize some notion, some fantasy, let me say, of uh, an eternal, unchanging being outside time. Right? Uh, an effort to uh, deny becoming and to posit some kind of reference point that does not change in the midst of, of all the changes of the world of becoming. So whether this is you know, a platonic idea or uh, the creator god of monotheism who's different from the Greek gods who are right there on Mount Olympus in the world with a history, you know, mm-hmm. this idea of a god that is outside of history controlling it from afar or in modern scientific terms, the notion of a subject who is always self-identical and although goes through all sorts of these modal changes, superficial changes, essentially remains the same. Nietzsche is everywhere attempting to, uh, I hesitate to use the word, deconstruct uh, uh, this <laughs> fantasy in all of its guises wherever it appears. Um, mm-hmm. And the concept of play is absolutely central to this because the way to challenge these notions, the ideologies, if you will, um, mm-hmm. is not to simply oppose them and to say no to them, but, but, but to make them, to put them at play within themselves in order to shift and change and transform what appears to be so static and so unchanging and so immutable. And, you know, that's a, that's a mouthful, but if you think about it, that's really how Winnicott thinks about what analytic practice is. It's not about telling the patient the truth of her history. Mm-hmm. And it's not about... Um, you know, simply browbeating the patient into accepting that she's being defensive and accepting the analyst's authority. Uh, you know, very few analysts would claim that that's what analysis is. But in my experience, this has so many of them practice, and Winnicott didn't uh, decisively. And Winnicott really understood that the clinical relationship is one in which all bets are off, is one in which um, this is an experimental practice, in which I'm going to forget about who I think I am so that you can do the same, or we can have a different kind of experience. Um, and what Nietzsche was calling for in terms of will to power is the ability precisely to do that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sp- uh, speaking of the ability to play, you know, there, you, you do get more into the clinical... Nietzsche's applications, or, or rather, relevance for the for the clinic, um, when you talk about, you know, this as if patients in one formulation, concrete patients in Alan Bass's formula, you know, the Lacanian perverse, Winnicottian false self. These these sorts mm-hmm. of patients. I mean, does does Nietzsche help us think through how to be with such patients and get them to play, or in yeah again in in one formulation? Um, well, yeah, that, with those. <laughs> Yeah. With those kinds of patients who go by a number of different names these days, mm. um, the question is always, you know, how do you, literally, how do you quote, unquote, open them up to clinical experience? You know, the answer to the question, I don't think, is uh, a particular technique for how to do that. Mm-hmm. I think if one wants to begin to open up people who are closed off to, uh, again, use the term that you brought up, symbolization, you know, we really need to rethink the basic foundations of so much in our discipline. Um, so it's not that Nietzsche provides us, you know, so often people come to train as analysts and they look at it as kind of a, you know, a professional guild and they just want to know, tell me what to say to my patients to make them better. <laughs> um, you know, and of course... Sometimes when I get desperate, you know, sometimes I get desperate enough to ask that question. Yeah, well, (laughs) but at the end of the day, you know, the way we get our, the way we get our patients to open up is by learning to transform ourselves in relation to them. Mm. And again, you know, thinking past the traditional classical metaphysical subject object structure where I'm inside my head, you're inside your head. And we simply communicate technically. I tell you what to do, you tell me what to do. Nietzsche is trying to put that entire way of thinking about human relationships aside and to say, and if there's a clinical advice here, it's if, if you're having trouble opening up to clinical experience, to symbolic experience, a patient who is insistently shut down, it's because they've managed to shut something down in you which you're not aware of. And the more we become aware of that, the more we can extend or we can open ourselves up to another person in ways that I think will mutually engender that kind of openness. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm not making a claim in the book that we can look for Nietzsche 
look to nature for technique, for therapeutic technique. Right, but I right. do think he asks a series of very penetrating questions that are relevant to how we conceive of what it is that we do in this day and age, which we need to, re- we need to think about again if, if psychoanalysis is to have a future. Mm-hmm. Well, since... Okay, I'm going to ask you something about something that you didn't discuss in the book, but it interests me, which is, um, you know, I, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the way that Nietzsche thinks repetition? And um, we, you didn't yeah. talk much about that, in the, and I'm curious actually why uh, it didn't come up. I, I was expecting something about, you know, the eternal return, right. and com- you know, comparisons to repetition compulsion or return of the repressed even or something. So, right. So there's something about the way that, Freud conceptualizes, I, I guess I guess it's like really the question is twofold. One is, you know, maybe you can say a little bit about this, the way that Nietzsche thinks repetition, and if it's significantly different from the way that Freud thinks repetition, or is it, or are they right. very similar? Um, I think on the surface they are significantly different. I think that there are moments in Freud's work where you get a kind of, Nietzschean, or proto-Nietzschean, or, you know, it's something close to what Nietzsche is saying, but I would say it's not in the concept of repetition compulsion. Mm. So, I mean, if I can interpret haha, your question, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, I think you're asking me, well, why didn't you write about eternal return, right? Which would seem to be, if you're going to write about anything in psychoanalysis and Nietzsche, isn't there so much to be said on that concept? Mm. And I left it aside uh, because, I mean, there would have been an enormous amount of scholarly work in previous writing on that topic that I would have had to go, go through. But also, you know, eternal return is a fairly vexed concept in Nietzsche's work and in Nietzsche's studies, how we're supposed to interpret it. <laughs> um, you know, some people would you know, give the interpretation that Nietzsche literally believes in this kind of, you know, classical mythological sense that everything returns eternally and the same thing is happening over and over again at some kind of cosmological level. Um, you know, Deleuze's interpretation is to show us that, no, this is not about cosmology. This is about, this is an ethical project where whatever you will, you will it in such a way that you would say yes to it, even if it happened again and again, infinitely. Hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, taking up the concept of eternal return would have required kind of a book in itself. <laughs> but for Nietzsche, repetition is... Here's a difficult thought, and this is a thought that Nietzsche shares with Heidegger, with Deleuze, especially with Derrida. It's this way of thinking about repetition as something that is linked to difference, and that's not what you find in Freud. In mm-hmm. Freud, the repetition compulsion is about repetition of the same. Okay, so we're back, going back to your previous question about clinical practice. If I'm dealing with a patient, and, and we all are, this is what the symptom is, right? It's just, it's just empty repetition of the same. If I'm dealing with somebody who is emptily repeating the same over and over again, how do I open them up to repeat difference? There's the original idea. What does it mean to think about the repetition of difference? That's a weird idea. That's something that Nietzsche begins to think about, and that is expanded by those thinkers who are influenced by him. And so Nietzsche is a thinker of repetition. On the one hand, you have a kind of classical repetition, which is always repetition of the same thing, which is how Freud thinks. But then Nietzsche begins to think about the possibility of difference emerging from out of repetition. Mm-hmm. And although Freud, so like I said, Freud doesn't think about that concept explicitly, but Jesus Christ, what is more repetitious than psychoanalysis, right? I was just about it, to say that, right? The whole point of the enterprise is, right? It, the whole yeah. point of the enterprise, people today... Insurance companies want us to see people for 10 sessions and then have it finished. But the whole point of the project <laughs> to repeat. is that from out of this, this endless, seemingly, mm. apparently, potentially endless repetition, you get the possibility of difference and change. So that's why Nietzsche is a thinker. You know, Nietzsche is often considered to be a conservative thinker. And there's truth in that. But he's conservative in the sense that he understands that the invention of a new future always depends upon the acquisition of tradition. And so Nietzsche's suspicion of liberalism would be to say, you can't just break with the established order of things and, and, and liberate oneself towards a new freedom. If there's going to be a, a real potential for freedom and difference and change in the future, it's always got to build upon the past, not break with it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche thinks about tradition, which is repetition, as a source of difference. Uh, you know, again, another word I hesitate to use, authentic difference. 
rather than, you know, the empty repetition of the same in the guise of the new, the innovative, mm-hmm. which is how he saw commercial culture today. Uh, the same uh-huh. thing over and over again in the guise of the new. In the guise of the new, right. But there is something, I mean, I, I guess if to be Nietzsche, I don't know if this is, if you'd agree with this, but I, the way to, one way to see it is that the iterative process itself somehow generates um, difference because because it's being, the, the sort of cultural background, as it were, changes so that it's the same, it's, there's a repetition, but it's against a different, you know, there, there's the somehow, yeah, that it, uh, there are these small differences that occur because somehow the cultural background shifts. Does that make sense? Um, so, so if you repeat yeah, yeah, within the right. analytic frame, yeah, um, there's something about the responses of the analysts that intrude upon these, this, this process, and therefore um, it's, against, it's against the presence of the analyst that, that, that this change occurs in very small, you know, incremental ways, perhaps. I would, I would agree completely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, again, why Nietzsche's trying to get us to think beyond um, you know, a, a, a thinking about human relationships in terms of subjects and objects. It's just mm. about subjects and objects. The presence of the analyst, the neutral analyst, in the context of an ongoing repetitive process, you know, wouldn't inherently do anything. You'd just be waiting for the analyst to say the right thing. Oh, my gosh, now I get it, doctor. Thank you. I'm cured. Bye. But that doesn't work. It, it doesn't happen like that. So, um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, you know, there would be two different kinds of thinking of repetition. One kind of repetition that consistently appears to produce the illusion of the new and change and one that genuinely authentically shifts things at a very deep level, but that can appear as if nothing, nothing has actually happened when major changes have, which is again, what I think we see clinically, you know, Mm. I don't know about you, but every day my patients, not every day, but often my patients will complain that absolutely nothing is changing, that the analysis isn't working, and I could point to them, all the, all <laughs> the, the strides forward, they you know, you're making twice as much money, you've got a better job, you're in love, blah, 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 and yet it, it, it consistently might not feel that way to somebody mm. who's stuck in a metaphysical enclosure that sees nothing, nothing but the present, mm. and not the link between the past and the future. Can you actually say something more about, I'm not sure how to ask the question about the clinical material in the book. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I wish that you had given almost more of it. You know, you kept it pretty short yeah. and concise. And I, you know, I just wanted to gain something into, you know, gain some insight into your thinking about in, including the clinical and, and, yeah. and sort of, um, um, yeah, putting it into dialogue with Nietzsche as well. That's a fair question. Um, you know, like, Again, thank you for the kind, your kind words at the beginning of the interview. You, you really did summarize my project very well. This was my effort to, I mean, maybe I could go into more of a personal biography here of, um, of how I came to not just Nietzsche, but philosophy and psychoanalysis. And let me put that aside for a second. Um, but I was trying to think about clinical work in relation to the kind of material that most analysts would just dismiss as purely theoretical, as just philosophy. Mm. And um, I really was trying to do something new with the writing in getting clinical material in relation to texts that people would consider purely academic. And um, you're, you're right. I only give sort of vignettes. There's no, there's no full case presentation in the book. I think I, sh- I shied away from that mostly because of, I don't know, my experience with what happens when analysts present their clinical material in, in any kind of depth. I, mean, I don't know about your experience, but my experience is always that clinical case material functions as a kind of Rorschach test or whatever, whatever anybody wants to see. And so, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I guess I was trying to rein that in. I was just getting little moments to show where, um, where Nietzsche's way of thinking is, is very helpful in naming experiences that I think all analysts have, but that the mainstream psychoanalytic literature at least doesn't have a vocabulary for. I mean, also, you know, I would have been kind of self-conscious presenting uh, an in-depth, you know, long analytic process, an in-depth case, and saying, aha, see, Nietzsche is the one who helps us understand Mm. what's going on here. I mean, it just, just, again, it falls back upon a kind of authoritarianism that I was trying to to Uh avoid. So, um, you know, I appreciate your saying you wanted more clinical material. Uh, I think there was a kind of hesitancy in me 
to to go into more depth uh, and to figure out. I mean, that's a hesitancy, but you know, it, it's hard to figure out how to balance writing about clinical material with you know a thinker and with concepts that haven't been previously you know used in this capacity. So I was trying to do something new, mm-hmm. and I did what I could to the best of my capacity, but. Um, no, you, you gave us good morsels, better. you know. I just just wanted just a yeah. little more, <laughs> just a little more. Well, you know, yeah, it was just I my own you, preference. I, you, yeah. Anna, I yeah. got the weirdest email recently. I published a paper in, in a journal that you're involved with, the Candidate Journal, right? Mm-hmm. Which was a purely theoretical paper. I got the strangest email from somebody who went to the lengths of seeking me out to let me know that, you know, all of this philosophy is all well and good, but we really only ever learn anything from working with our patients. <laughs> as if to say, you know, you stop thinking, you know, just, just, just report what happens in the clinic. Mm. And I don't know, that just spells the death now for any kind of creativity for me. <laughs> so I was trying to link um, clinical material with, with theoretical material. Right. Like I said before, theory gets a bad rap in psychoanalysis, but um, anyone who writes knows that theory can be at least an extremely personal um, way of speaking and thinking. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't understand anybody who works without it. It's just a question of whether it's visible or not, or whether people kind yeah. of can, can articulate what it is that they're, the categories that they're using. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, speaking of theory, what, do you think there's something actually that post-Freudian, I'm thinking of Lacan, actually, but I, I want to move a little bit. I want to say a few things about the Lacan chapter, but, um, sure. you know, but let's just like widen it. You know, maybe post-Freudian psychoanalysis, what, what is, is there something it can think that Nietzsche can't think? I mean, is there something, have, ha, did it go further, you know, as all, I mean, it's, it's a big body of theory and it's very diverse and I, I recognize that. But um, like, do you think, you know, Nietzsche had certain limits as a, like a 19th century intellectual Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> Nietzsche very much. I mean, there's no question about it that as untimely as Nietzsche's thinking is, you know, as he portrayed himself, mm-hmm. nonetheless, mm-hmm. it does belong to its time. Nietzsche was very much a 19th century thinker who only really comes into his own in the 20th century when people begin to really read his work. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot that's limited in Nietzsche. I mean, particularly, I, 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 this is kind of what I was trying to say a moment ago with regard to more clinical material. I mean, the bottom line is Nietzsche is not a clinical thinker. I mean, what does what does psychoanalysis, post-Freudian and post-Freudian psychoanalysis do to um, to build upon what Nietzsche might have had to offer? It's to open up the very specific domain of the clinic um, hmm. and to take, you know, um, at one point, it's in a Lacan chapter, right? I spent some yes, time with yeah. Lacan saying psychoanalysis is something I believe very strongly, actually. Um, psychoanalysis is not a university discourse, right? And I said, for Nietzsche, neither is philosophy. But Nietzsche didn't have a way of thinking where this discourse might situate itself, what it, what it might do. Nietzsche was very much alone, and he did not have, you know, a movement like the one inaugurated by Freud to develop his thinking in the context of. So, um, I'm not sure if you're asking just about post-Freudian psychoanalysis or Lacan in particular. Well, I know you, in, um, in, that, in that Lacan chapter, right, you, you very clearly, like, outlined this shift in Lacan from, you know, his early teaching, which was an emphasis on, or earlier, mid, I would say, emphasis on the symbolic, the unconscious, the structure, like a language, all of this, uh-huh. and to, to what he calls the real, the emphasis on the real, or, you know, the centome, the lalong, la the drives, resonance of the speaking being, all of this, the real unconscious. Um, and I'm not sure, that, by the way, that Lacan ever fully abandons a negative ontology or you know, the subject as lack, and like, just like the way that Freud never abandons, you know, whatever the topographical model or, you know, fully mm-hmm. or, or a seduction theory or whatever. Sure. But, but, but I appreciate that there are these big shifts, but you seem to make this point that it's really the late Lacan that connects up with Nietzsche in a, in a, in a way that it's um, fruitful. There, there's like a major convergence for you between Nietzschean thought and Lacanian late thought and, and, um, yeah. and, and, and also how, and you link it very to the clinic very specifically. It's you know because it's it's mainly about interpretation in in your or at least for me this is what it seems like that the convergence is around the concept of inter interpretation. You know, let me say something about my own encounter with Lacan. You may know more about this than I do. Um, I, I know you've been working very closely with uh, Lacanian thought. My own approach to Lacan was kind of um, kind of zigzagged. Uh, 
know, when I first came to psychoanalysis, I had been a student of, um, of continental philosophy. So Lacan was part of the canon. You just read him. Right. And as challenging and as difficult as he was, he wasn't impossible and he was not opaque. And when I began to, you know, meet psychoanalysts and you would go to these senior analyst offices and they all had the, you know, the Sheridan translation of the decree, <laughs> the old one that's just like, yes. I mean, you might as well excuse it at the doorstop. It's unreadable. <laughs> um, everybody wanted you to think that they knew yeah. Lacan and then you try to ask them about it and they knew nothing about Lacan whatsoever. They said, I don't understand it. So Lacan was always somebody that I understood, but also coming from a philosophical perspective, I, I, I felt the way I had been trained that... Um, Certain critiques of Lacan uh, had really were really on the money. Um, Derrida and Nancy and La Coulabar's uh, treatment of Lacan's work, I thought, pretty much summarized what the problems were and had moved past it. So I always knew about Lacan, but I was never particularly interested in him. And then, as I began to identify more and more as a clinician, I began to see mm. what. Lacan was from a so from a philosophical perspective, I thought ah, Lacan belongs to the structural you know tradition, mm. and he can be there. It's, it's very easy to challenge him. But when I really began to think about Lacan in my clinical practice and saw how useful a lot of his formulations were, I, I began to reconsider this critique that I'd been immersed in for so long. Um, and mm-hmm. you, know, you come to realize that these people who are very critical of Lacan think that he never wrote about anything but the mirror stage or the phallus. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. And right. it was through mm-hmm. you know it was through the work of Jacques Lemillaire that I began to understand that you know much like Freud, Lacan didn't just say one thing. He evolved probably mm-hmm. more other than Freud, probably more so than any other analytic thinker in the history of the movement. Lacan really could have continuously worked on and reformulated his position. And so, you know, I, I think you're right to say that these sort of sharp distinctions between an early and a later Lacan are artificial. And I paid homage to the fact that, that is, that's just a way of speaking. It, it is artificial, and it's not that Lacan, any more than Freud, as you put it, abandons previous positions and accedes to later ones. But I do think that the later Lacan, um, who is more interested in the real, who is more interested in the body, who formulates a concept of the subject as part of that right, speaking being, mm-hmm. um, has assimilated critiques of his earlier work and has understood them yes. yeah. and has attempted to run with them. So it's not that, I mean, there's a major convergence of Nietzsche and Lacan and, and then there's not, right? It's not mm-hmm. that Lacan all of a sudden goes, ah, oh, Nietzsche is the truth. <laughs> but Lacan certainly, I think, moves away from, from Hegel. Uh, he moves away from his, I, I think, complete misunderstanding of Heidegger via Sartre in the beginning of his work, and he really begins to work in a different direction that, for me, uh, bears the traces of you know, a serious encounter with Nietzsche through Bataille and, I think, through Derrida, who Lacan, I believe, read actually quite closely, but he, of course, would never, never admit that to be the case. <laughs> I think Lacan, you know, Lacan was, was very plugged into what was going on at the time, you know, and um, when a younger generation began to criticize him, I think he took it very seriously, and he updated his work. You know, he was influenced by that. He was, you know, talking about Will Power. He was open to it. He didn't have to be the master who always knew everything. Mm-hmm. Instead, he, he began to, to reformulate things, and I think that there is a much more open Lacan, a Lacan that's not as focused on desire, on the subject of the signifier, although that, of course, you're right, that never disappears. Lacan begins to think in a different direction. And, I know, um, that's, that's, there's no and, doubt. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. definitely a shift. And, and he responds to the feminists as well. I mean, that's just a, you know, like when he shifts from the phallus more toward, the, you know, object A, for example, even in the 60s. Yeah. We already see... Well, that, you know, that even begins as early as, what, like 1959, right? Seminar yeah. 6, where he hits upon the formula, there is no other of the other. I mean, from there's that no moment on, Lacan's mm-hmm. work is never the same never the same again and that's what he keeps developing the early Lacan is so preoccupied with the law yes and then all of a sudden you know he sees that there's a limitation here it doesn't reflect what's actually going on in the world and he begins to look at the world I think in a more Nietzschean light mm-hmm. okay oh we're running we're running out of time so um before okay. but before we go I I wanted to ask you about what you're working on these days what are you working on now I'm, I'm superstitious enough to hesitate before that question. Um, <laughs> I've got, you know, you mentioned at the beginning in my bio, I'm involved with a journal um, on, on deconstruction and psychoanalysis. I've got enough papers 
previously published on the topic of deconstruction and psychoanalysis. Uh, and I've got a couple in, in progress where I might be able to put together a, a volume on that topic. Um, mm. But what I'm really working on is a book on Freud. Um, actually, Anna, you, you oh. took one of my classes on Freud. Mm-hmm. And that material, I've taught it at a couple places, and I'm about to teach it again this fall. Um, that material has really gotten me thinking about about Freud and, and how to say something about Freud that I don't think is being said these days. Uh, That's brilliant. Little, That's amazing. Uh, my own little return to Freud. I'm not announcing a major volume or anything like that, but <laughs> okay. I'm really interested. You know, in, in my training, which I know it's going to be yours as well, because we're at the same institute, there's really no Freud in a contemporary Freudian perspective. The way we learned Freud was, you know, you appreciate it for a year in its historical context, and then it was, forget all about that, just remember it ego, super ego, and, you know, Freud is, <laughs> is, is no longer important. Uh, I, I really feel, like Lacan, actually, but in a different way, that it, it's the early Freud um, that is, and it's Freud who thinks about unconscious memory in a way that I think we've forgotten about today, mm. that is really exciting. So that's, that's what I'm working on. Oh, that sounds very intriguing, very intriguing. Thank yeah. you. Jared, um, thank you so much. Our time's up, unfortunately, but um, it was a pleasure to have you on. And uh, I've been talking to, again, Jared Russell about his book, Nietzsche and the Clinic, Psychoanalysis, Philosophy, Metaphysics. Thanks, and thanks to our audience for listening.